Welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. In this session, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. It's the second half of Romans 4. We broke it into two just for the sake of time and space, but it's one long presentation of the story of Abraham. Really, it's an exposition specifically of the idea that Abraham was was justified by faith, and thus justification by faith, as Paul laid out at the end of chapter 3, establishes the law rather than nullifies the law. Here is Abraham, the founding father of the Jewish people and the Jewish nation, and yet Abraham himself believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was justified by faith. And so Paul enters into this exposition of the story of Abraham to help really ground this teaching of justification by faith and what the law itself says to help particularly his Jewish audience understand that in teaching justification by faith, He's not teaching anything new. This is the way God has always done it. In fact, this is the way God did it with the very founding father of his rescue operation, Abraham himself. And he teaches Abraham's story in such a way to help all of us see that God's plan was always to have one family made up of Gentiles and Jews who all have Abraham-type faith in God. Here in the section we're going to look at in this recording, verses 13 through 25, really answers the third question that Paul is dealing with in his exposition of Abraham. The first question he dealt with in verses 1 through 8 was, why can't Abraham boast? And the reason he can't boast is because he received it via promise and faith, not via something he earned. It wasn't a paycheck. It was a gift. The second question Paul takes up in verses 9 through 12 is, well, when was Abraham counted righteous? When he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And the answer is, well, while he was uncircumcised. In fact, Abraham spent 14 years as a person justified by faith, credited as righteous and uncircumcised. He didn't receive the covenant of circumcision until Genesis 17, 14 years after God declared him righteous. Here in this session, verses 13 and following, we're going to look at the third question, which is, how did Abraham receive the promise? And the simple answer to that question that Paul lays out in detail here in these verses is, Abraham received the promise by faith, not the law. Now that should seem obvious to us since Moses comes 500 years or so after the life of Abraham. God gave the law to Moses, and thus the law itself didn't actually come onto the scene of history until 500 years or more after the life of Abraham. And yet, nevertheless, Jews of Paul's day, at least some Jews of Paul's day, taught that Abraham was sort of like an early adopter of the law, that he was a a law keeper even before the law had been given, and that's why God chose him. And Paul has to really say, no, that's just not the way it worked. He was credited righteous simply by virtue of receiving a promise, believing a promise that God gave him. He received it by faith, not by keeping the law, not by somehow, in some sort of way, keeping the law, even though it hadn't been given yet. And so Paul is going to lay this out for us, that Abraham 
receive the promise by faith, not by keeping the law in any sort of way. So let's jump in and look at the details. Here's the way it begins in verse 13. For, right in the middle of this thought about Abraham, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And that's the main point of this section is that the promise was received by, was welcomed by, was experienced by the righteousness of faith, not the law. And so the righteousness of faith there in verse 13 is simply Paul's way of summarizing the whole point he's been making, that this is the way God has always intended to bring about his rescue of the world. This is the way he did it with Abraham. This is the way he did it with David. This is the way he does it with all his people. The righteous one lives by faith, as Paul quoted in Romans 1.17. The promise is described or summarized here in verse 13 as that Abraham would be heir of the world. And that includes, obviously, the promise of descendants of an offspring, and that'll become the focal point as Paul goes on through here. But that promise of descendants was coupled with, in Genesis, the promise to inherit the land. And so Paul seems to be thinking of the whole Abraham story, that I'm going to give you descendants, and I am going to give you this very land to your descendants. And Paul here names what God did for Abraham as explicitly a promise, a promise. That word hasn't been used earlier in the chapter, but it's used here to enunciate that this is something God does, that God is promising to do, and that Abraham simply believes. That's what you do with a promise. Someone says, I'm going to promise you that I will do this. You trust them. You believe them. And God promised, and Abraham believed and thus it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, what Paul does next in verses 14 and 15 is he explains specifically why the law didn't work, why it couldn't be through the law, why indeed it wasn't through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Notice that verse 14 begins with the word for, for explains. It's an explanatory word, and so he's explaining why it's through faith, not through the law. So he says in verse 14 and 15, for if those who were of the law are heirs, in other words, being of the law means you're under the law, you're characterized by the law, that's who you are, you're of the law. And specifically, that means the Jews and any Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. And notice what he says. He says, if those who are of the law are heirs, if they're the ones that inherit the promise, Faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Well, how so? Well, that's what verse 15 explains. Verse 15 says, For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. Let's clarify what Paul is getting at. To summarize the point he's making in verses 14 and 15, what he's saying in essence is that because the law brings wrath, brings a curse, as Paul has demonstrated in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Romans, right? He's already laid that out, that if you break the law, you're under the curse. The Jews broke the law. They were under the curse. They knew that. They continued experiencing the effects of the curse and Roman occupation and all such things. And so because the law brings the curse, brings wrath, it can't be the basis for inheriting the promise to Abraham or else the promise 
would be left unfulfilled. It would be nullified and canceled out. And thus God's promise to Abraham would amount to nothing if it were by Torah, because the Torah has brought wrath. That's just what it has done. And Paul's already established that point about Torah in chapters 2 and 3, so he doesn't really need to restate that here because he's argued that in full. So he's drawing this conclusion from the preceding argument in chapters 2 and 3. So God had promised to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him. And yet if all the world, including Jews who are under the law, stand under God's just condemnation, then there's no way all the nations would be blessed through him. That promise would be canceled out. That is the overall point Paul is making here in verses 14 and 15. Now, one little note there when he says at the end, but where there is no law, there is no violation or transgression. The word violation literally is transgression. And what that means is if you don't have a specific command, you can't violate it. You can't step out of bounds. You can't cross it and thus incur wrath, the consequences, the curse. And yet the law has been given. There has been violation. And thus there has been wrath, as Paul says in the middle of verse 15. Paul then goes on in verse 16, continuing his explanation and says, For this reason, because there has been wrath, because the law brought about wrath, uh, brought about the curse, for this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. And so, because the law brought wrath, it is by faith that the promise will be experienced. In fact, he says, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. And this harkens back to the payroll analogy in verses 4 and 5, where Paul tells us that we receive this as a gift of grace, not for something that we've earned. And so when you receive a gift, a promise, you do so simply trusting the giver, and thus it's by grace. Paul says the result of this, middle, the second half of verse 16, the result of this is that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. The promise that was given to Abraham, that he would be a blessing to many nations, um, would now be guaranteed to all the descendants. It's not going to be nullified or canceled out because of the law, but it's going to be guaranteed to all the descendants, right? All the descendants of Abraham, not only to those who are of the law, but also of the faith of Abraham. And so, meaning, if you have the law and you're of the law, you still got to have the faith of Abraham, as Paul said above. And if you're a Gentile, you're not of the law, you still got to have the faith of Abraham. So the key thing is faith. This is how the promise is experienced and received by having the same type of faith that Abraham had. And then Abraham is described there in verse, uh, at the end of verse 16, as the father of us all, the father of Jew and Gentile alike, the father of God's people now formed in Messiah. Abraham is the father of all of us. God has one family, the family of Abraham. That family is marked out by the faith of Abraham, and it's composed of Jew and Gentile alike. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, which is a quote from Genesis 17, 5. 
And just note this and keep this in mind, in both the Old and the New Testaments, the word translated nation is usually the same word also translated Gentile. And so when it says, I've made you a father of many nations, you could just as well translate, a father of many Gentiles have I made you. Paul knows this, that this word means both nation and Gentiles, because the the word Gentile simply means the nations, the people of the nations, the non-Jews, right? And so Abraham is a father of the Gentiles. He's a a father of the Gentiles who have the same type of faith that he had. And Paul goes on and says in verse 17 that this is what Abraham experienced in the presence of him in who he believed. Remember, chapter 4 began with the question, what shall we say Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? And then Paul. Paul goes on to say, if he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but that's not the way it was before God. Notice that Paul is talking about what Abraham experienced before God. And what he experienced before God was, this wasn't by works. This wasn't by something he had done. This wasn't by the law. What did Abraham experience before God in the presence of God? Well, what he experienced was a promise to be received by faith and experienced by grace. And so when Paul says, in the presence of whom he believed, what he's saying is, this is what Abraham found before God. What Abraham found before God was, God relates to Abraham and his people by faith. And so it is by faith that we experience the righteousness of God. And God is described at the end of verse 17 as, the one who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. This is a perfect phrase for Abraham's experience. Abraham didn't have any descendants. God's going to call that into being, right? And as Paul will go on to say, as far as Abraham was concerned, Sarah's womb was dead. He was advanced in age, and his body was virtually dead for childbearing. And yet God is going to give life as well to both Sarah's dead womb and his body, and they're going to have descendants. They're going to have offspring. And so God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Paul is going to go on and explain that, really just hearkening to Abraham's experience. And so verse 18 through 25 wrap up the story of Abraham by emphasizing the kind of faith had and the kind of faith, therefore, that we must have in order to be part of Abraham's family. We need Abraham-like faith. Well, what kind of faith did Abraham have? Here's the kind of faith he had. Verse 18, in hope against hope, Abraham believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to what had been spoken. So, so shall your descendants be, right? God showed him the stars of the heaven there in Genesis and said, you're going to have descendants like the stars of the heaven. You're not even going to be able to count them. And Abraham believed that. That's what That's the promise he believed that was credited as righteousness, right? He believed that in hope against hope, he believed. Like year after year, decade, another decade, right? Like God made this promise and God didn't answer it right away. It was literally decades later when uh, Abraham saw and experienced the fulfillment of that which was promised. And yet Abraham believed, he believed God's promise that somehow God was going to give him descendants. And so in hope against hope, he believed. Even when it didn't make sense, he believed. 
that he would be the father of many nations, that he was going to have all these descendants. In fact, verse 19, Paul describes it this way. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. I mean, here, here he is, an old man. Sarah's womb is dead. As far as bearing children, his body is, for all intents and purposes, dead. And Abraham contemplated that. And without becoming weak in faith, he saw that. And yet with respect to the promise of God, he didn't waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform. And so that is the kind of faith that Abraham had. Abraham had a faith in the specific promise of God. We need to have faith in a specific promise and action of God. It's not so much the emphasis on um, believing really hard, but a settled confidence that God is able to do what he said he can do. Right? That's how it's described here. Yet with respect to the promise of God, that specific promise, he didn't waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what God had promised, God was able to do. God was able to perform. That's Abraham-like faith. Now, by way of a bit of an aside, but an important aside nonetheless, a legitimate question comes out of this, and that is, well, yeah, but didn't Abraham waver in faith like when he took Hagar? Wasn't that a wavering in faith? Paul is certainly, you know, hitting just the high points of this story to make his point. And he's at this point focusing on the culmination of the story, where now we're at the point where God is going to fulfill this. So we're actually a good decade, decade and a half after the Hagar story. That's where Paul is focusing. So he did grow stronger in faith. He took God at his word. When God told him in view of the Hagar-Ishmael experience, when God said, no, 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 that's not going to be how it's going to work, Abraham. I'm literally going to give you a descendant through Sarah. And Abraham believed that, all right? And so there was a growing understanding and a deepening of Abraham's faith over the years after the initial statement of pro, um, promise. And Paul doesn't totally ignore that when he talks about him growing strong in faith. However, I would also add just culturally and historically, what, what Abraham did with Hagar sort of made sense, at least in his culture, right? God had made a promise, you're going to have descendants. God didn't answer right away. Sarah couldn't get pregnant. In his culture, the way you dealt with that and produced a legitimate heir was you had a surrogate. That was just a legal and cultural way to produce uh, an heir, was to have a surrogate. And so I, I can imagine Abraham saying, well, maybe that's what God meant. When God made that promise, maybe it wasn't really supposed to be Sarah. He just meant you will have le legal descendants and well, the way we do that is a surrogate, and so he took Hagar, right? And maybe he was trying to figure it out. God came to him much more specific. No, that's not the way it's going to work, Abraham. It really is going to come through Sarah. You will see my power in and through Sarah. And Abraham then believed that, and he waited and waited and waited, and he kept trusting, and he kept waiting until finally, uh, now about 100 years old, God fulfilled the promise to him. And so as he grew stronger in faith, he believed the specific words and the specific promise of God. And that's the point Paul wants us to make or get here. So 
Paul then restates what was said in Genesis 15, 6, that it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what motivated this exposition of Abraham is that line. He wants us to see that this is the way God worked with Abraham. This is not contrary, therefore, to the law. This is actually at the heart of the law. So, therefore, it was this faith was credited to him as righteousness. Now, he says, not only for Abraham's sake, was it written that it was credited to him, but also for our sake. Now, looking back on that, it was written for our sake, to whom also it will be credited to us. It will be credited as righteousness as well. So it wasn't just for Abraham's sake those words were spoken and written, but also for our sake. It was written down so we could read it and realize, oh, this is the way it's going to be. This is the way God works with people. The righteous one shall live by faith. So, verse 24, but also for our sake, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgression and raised because of our justification. And so, whereas Abraham believed the specific promise of God that he would have descendants, now God's people are those who believe the specific promise word of God that Jesus was raised from the dead and God now has appointed him as Messiah. And so just as Abraham had a specific faith focused on the promise of God, we too have a specific faith focused on the resurrection of Jesus. This is the specific faith that fulfills the promise to Abraham. Jesus is the ultimate descendant of Abraham and believing in him is the ultimate act of Abraham-like faith. A person can't believe in any God or any higher power and have the faith of Abraham. He must believe in the God that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the specific faith that we must have for us now to be credited as righteous. That's the specific faith now that marks out the people of God. So the elimination of the Jewish boast the and justification by faith don't nullify the law, as Paul said at the end of chapter 3. No, the, they derive from the very fountainhead of the entire show, Abraham himself. This is what God is about. God is about justifying people by faith. He did it for Abraham. He did it for David. And he'll do it for you and me. Now, as we wrap up this section, let me just offer a few concluding reflections. And the first is this. Abraham's story is our story, right? The Old Testament story is our story. When we read uh, the Abraham story and we read about the Exodus, this is our family history. Abraham is the father of us all. And so we're reading about our roots. We're reading about where we came from. And so we should learn to read that story well, as Paul does here, to understand the theology and the faith point that's made in that story. And when we do, I believe it gives us a sense of place. We know where we belong. We know what this world is all about, where the history of the world is going, where how God is working. We have a sense of rootedness, a sense of place. We're not adrift in the world. We have a long-standing family history rooted way back 2,000 years before Jesus in the person of Abraham. He walked by faith. Struggling and imperfect faith as it was at times, he walked by faith, and we imitate that faith, and we walk by faith too. 
And on that note of faith, another concluding reflection is just the idea of faith, that faith is what marks out God's people. Faith is what God really cares about, distinct and different from the law. Faith is based on God's promises. It's based on what God said he will do. It's trusting that what God said he will do, he will actually do. He has the ability to perform. And our faith now is focused specifically on Jesus and his resurrection. If God raised Jesus from the dead, he likewise will raise us from the dead and he will make all things new. And so we walk by faith in this God. And finally, the last concluding reflection here is just the matrix of faith, credited, and righteousness. That's the central point Paul is making here in Romans chapter 4. Do you want to be righteous? Do you want to be right with God? Do you want to have a right relationship with him? Well, on the basis of Romans 4, Paul would say to you, then Imitate Abraham's faith by trusting the God who raised Jesus from the dead. If you do that, you will be right with God. You will have a right relationship with him. God's promise originally made to Abraham and fulfilled in Jesus is received simply by loyal trust in the God who made it. Therefore, it's a gift of sheer grace. It's not a paycheck. It's a gift, something we receive. We do nothing to earn it. It's not according to what's due. We do nothing to convince God we're worthy of it. We have no claim on it. We are not worthy of it. He simply offered it to us and has given it to us on the basis of a gracious promise. And we open our hands and we receive it by faith. And when we do, God counts us righteous. That's the way to be in a right relationship with the God of the universe.